Well, we've come to the last day of our marriage series, and uh, it's kind of like running the credits at the end of a movie, in my thinking. I want to give some acknowledgments today. Uh, you know, when you're preparing a message series, you are drawing from all sorts of resources. The primary resources, resource, of course, is the Bible itself. But I'm very indebted to other people for the fine work they've done on the the whole idea of, uh, well, it really doesn't matter whether it's uh, preaching about marriage or what it is, there's a lot of resource out there. Barb and Gary Rosberg, America's Family Coaches, are, have been a, an invaluable resource to me for this series. And Rick Warren has done a lot of good work on, uh, on uh, marriage. He, he himself had a rough marriage, and maybe that's the reason he's so good at analyzing and concisely stating the issues that are facing married people today. He talks about the fact that he and Kay, when they were early on in their marriage, they, they wondered if they were going to make it. They sought counseling, they needed help, and they've grown a lot in their relationship. But I've drawn from him and uh, just wanted you to know that because uh, nothing's new under the sun. A Time magazine survey some years ago stated that the number one source of arguments among husbands and wives is due to their conflict over money. Gallup poll indicates that 56% of divorces in the United States are due to money problems and financial pressures. So we're going to talk about this today. I was tempted to title this message, How to Have a Good Marriage Though Poor. However, conflicts over money between married people are not just the domain of the poor. Even the richer among us have conflicts because of money. And we don't always think of the Bible as a resource for how to handle riches, but it really is. And what it has to say is far from the category of lofty idealism. It is incredibly down-to-earth and everyday. Good stuff for those of us who live life. For instance, here are some things we can take home with us today that can make a difference in how we think and act about money and relieve stress over it in our married lives. And even if you're not married, this is good counsel. We should know where it goes. That's uppermost. A lot of my references today are from Proverbs. Listen to what Solomon says as he counsels a bunch of shepherds regarding this. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks, Give careful attention to your herds. He's talking to them about their means of livelihood. The Living Bible paraphrases that verse like this. Riches can disappear fast, so watch your business interests closely. If you apply that to a non-agricultural society, here's the counsel we end up with. Know what's going on with your money. Ignorance is a bad policy when it comes to managing our money. Good sense, mostly good common sense, is a far preferable alternative to ignorance. There's another proverb, Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4. By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it is established through knowledge. Or, pardon me, let me read that again. By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Add this to the other bit of insight, and you end up with this. We should know what's going on with our money 
And we should make the choices about what's going on with our money wisely. These are statements about managing what God has entrusted to us. In order to do that well, we need to know what we own, what we owe, what we earn, and where it goes. The best way to do that is to keep some kind of a record. Now, as simple as this sounds, there are all kinds of people who don't do it at all or who don't do it well. Let me be quick to say that it may not come naturally for you to do this. And I'm a prime example. I've often said to Doris that if anything ever happened to her, within three to six months I'd be in quarter in jail. It's just, it's just not natural for me. And usually this is the way it is. Quite often in a marital relationship, one person is better at handling the books and the money than the other. So determine who it is in your relationship and give them the freedom to do it and keep each other informed. I think that's good practical counsel. If we do this, it will, number one, minimize many of our money woes throughout the year. It will make for less bickering between us if we'll do it and do it well. And it will help us maintain a stronger relationship. So number one, in terms of what to do with your money, we should know where it goes. Secondly, we should plan where it goes. Here's another proverb. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. A common biblical theme is that a wise person plans ahead, and the foolish person doesn't. Did you know that the average credit card debt in the United States per capita today is in excess of $15,000? In fact, to be exact, it's $15,270, according to the figures that I found. Not all, that, not all who are in debt are there because of foolishness, but all too many. That's the case. <clears throat> All too many times, pardon me, that's the case. Why is that? It's found in the words, haste leads to poverty. Did you pick that up in the proverb? The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. In other words, often it's the result of impulse buying. Um, we get into trouble with this. Or credit card debt itself, or succumbing to advertising psychology. You know, you deserve it. You need it. Actually, you can't live without it. And we buy this stuff, and then we're in debt. Catch this biblical statement. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Listen to this paraphrase of it. The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Is this all too common a reality for people you know, or perhaps even for yourself? How can we break the cycle then? There's one simple but effective way, and it's called a budget. That's news to some. A budget is planned spending. It's telling our money where we want it to go rather than wondering where it went. It's managing our money rather than letting it manage us. 
Here's some tips on how to budget well. For the married, budget decisions should be mutual decisions. Even if one party in the marriage, which is often the case, does hands-on management, the other ought to be a part of the process. Now, the question, a question is in order here. Is it possible that when two people are making decisions on things like a budget, that they're going to have a difference of opinion? <laughs> well, does it snow in Minnesota in the wintertime? Is the Pope Catholic? I mean, it's just obvious, right? It is possible when two people are making decisions on things like a budget that they're going to have plenty of differences of opinion. And if that's the case for you, here's some counsel, some good direction. Agree on the big things. Allow freedom in the small things and seek for harmony in all things. This should apply to decision-making in every area of marriage, including how we spend our money. For instance, it would be ludicrous for me to stop on the way home from work today and buy a new Ford F-150 pickup truck. That's a big decision. It would be ludicrous for me because I haven't even talked to my wife about it. That would kind of shock the system, wouldn't it? By the same token, to pick up a 2 or $3 tool or a piece of equipment at Menards or Home Depot when you're there doesn't require counsel. It's a small thing. So that's the reason for this, uh, this direction. Agree on the big things, allow freedom in the small things, seek for harmony in all things. This will help us. Now what happens if we reach an impasse when it comes to spending our money? You want something very badly and think you need it, and your wife doesn't see that's the case. Or maybe it's the other way around. Well, that leads to a second tip. Make sure God is the unseen partner in your decision-making. Pray about these things together. I mean, that's really being wise. The Bible tells us that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God, and he will give us wisdom. And I've shared with you before, this is from James chapter 1, verse 5, I've shared with you before how many times I have leaned on that verse, particularly when someone asks me something and it caught me flat-footed or it's a, it's a situation that I'm just in over my head with. I've talked to God on the spot. They didn't know it, but I'm saying, Lord, help me. I need wisdom. I don't know how to respond to this. And time after time after time, God has responded by giving me just what I needed to say. Sometimes I didn't even know where it was coming from. I mean, it was something I hadn't even thought about before, and it just popped into my mind. So if you reach an impasse, it's not unwise to even wait before you spend the money. Talk to God. Come back together later and discuss the issue and see what God has done in the meantime. Third thing we can do is base our budget making on goals. We should be the ones who decide what we want to save, what we want to spend, and what we want to give. So we should plan where our money goes. A third thing we should do is to enjoy what we have. In the 5th century, there was a man by the name of Arrhenius who determined to live a holy life. So he abandoned the conforms of Egyptian society to follow an austere lifestyle in the desert. I believe he was from Alexandria, which was a marvelous city, I'm told. But he gave it all up, 
went and lived in the desert, lived a very, very simple life in the desert. But interestingly enough, whenever he visited the great city of Alexandria, he spent time wandering through the marketplace, looking at all of the things for sale, all the things he could have. Someone asked him one day, why do you do that? You've obviously committed your life to uh, yourself to an austere lifestyle. You're living very simply in the desert. You come back to the city and you wander through the marketplace. Here's what he said. He said that his heart rejoiced at the sight of all the things he didn't need. Isn't that choice? He'd gotten victory over that stuff. He didn't need it. Those of us who live in a society flooded with goods and gadgets need to ponder the example of, of Irenaeus. A typical supermarket in the United States in 1976 stocked 9,000 items. That same supermarket today stocks over 30,000 items. How many are absolutely essential? And how many are just superfluous? Somebody's idea, a marketing scheme, whatever it might be. I remember a lady in Wisconsin, she and her husband had served the Lord in Kenya as missionaries for over 40 years. He died, I believe, on the field. She eventually came home, and she talked about the shock she had after she had come home after being in in Kenya for some time, just going shopping, just to get a jar of peanut butter. She said in the grocery store that she frequented back in Africa, they had maybe two or three kinds of peanut butter. Maybe chunky, smoothy, and or smooth, smooth and creamy, and something else. But um, in the grocery store here, there was a myriad of choices, and she said it was like shocking to her. Kind of reminds me of Garrison Keeler, you know, the the great storyteller, telling about Ralph's pretty good grocery store in Lake Wobegon. He said in most grocery stores they have all kinds of cereals, most of which aren't good for you. In Ralph's pretty good grocery store in Lake Wobegon, he only has six, only two of which aren't good for you. But that's the way it is in our culture. G.K. Chesterton said, There are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. I found this on the Internet this week. Source is unknown, but I wish I could give them credit. The only reason a great many American families don't own an elephant is that they've never been offered an elephant for a dollar down in easy weekly payments. Fits, doesn't it? Here's what Proverbs says. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. Now, this doesn't mean we should throw all of our goals out the window and just live so Spartan. It doesn't mean we should bury our initiative. What it means is that there are things more important than stuff, and we shouldn't sacrifice the greater in order to acquire the lesser. What it's a call for is perspective. We shouldn't become consumed by our goals and fail to enjoy what we have. We shouldn't become so caught up in making a living that we forget to make a life. More than once in the last couple of years, we've seen political figures and high-profile business people step down from their lofty positions 
because their ambitions to be good at home with their family took precedence. I applaud that. They didn't want to sacrifice the truly important for the expedient. We may never know how hard it is to make a decision like that, but we can all admire it. And we can all determine what our own perimeters will be. Overcommitment financially is a great threat to a marriage. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm sure you all know that. Not to mention a great threat to family life. The quest to get more, more money, more things, more achievements, more advancements, or whatever, has got to be seen in proper perspective. That's why the Bible is so outspoken on the issue. It tells us this. First Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. People who want to get rich and lose their perspective fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, says Paul, is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The other things are nice if they happen, but they do not ensure contentment. Enjoy the present. That's really the message. Can we do this? Enjoy the present. Think about it. Isn't there just a lot in our society that seems to work at making us feel discontent? Isn't that really the goal of advertising sales? They find a soft spot and they rub it raw. You've just got to have this. You can't live without this. Life won't be complete without this. That's nonsense. Commitment is first found, listen to me, commitment is first found in relationships. Everything else is just extra. So we should enjoy what we have. We should practice generosity with others and with God. Let's look at each of these separately. What about this thing of generosity toward others? I'll only tell you a little story here. A husband's on a business trip and he decides to buy a gift for his wife. He goes to the store, he's looking through the department store, and he, he comes through the fragrances department and he sees this little bottle of perfume, could easily fit it in his stuff to get it home. He said to the lady behind the counter, how much does that cost? She said, oh, that, that's $80. $80 for that little bottle? He, he exclaimed in disbelief. He said, can you show me something cheap? She said, sure. She took a mirror from behind the counter and gave it to him. said, here, look at this. We should be generous toward those who mean much to us. Here's an alarming biblical statement. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. It's alarming, but it's true. The principle introduced here is that of sharing. And here's the idea behind it from the Bible. Proverbs 19:17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. 
Giving to someone else in God's name is not just charity. We cannot just see it as charity. It is a loan to God. He who, get, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. It's a loan to God, and it will not go unrewarded by God. It may be a reward in kind, not necessarily in cash, but it will be just as meaningful. There are a lot more promises in the Bible regarding giving, a lot more promises in the Bible regarding giving than anything else, in fact. And why is that? Because God is a giver. And when we do the same, we're acting like him. It's just a natural expression of love. Let's talk about generosity toward God. Since everything we have belongs to God to begin with, the idea of generosity toward God raises some questions. The biggest question is this. How much is enough? Isn't that often the question? Okay, how much do I really, where do I stop giving to God? Do you know, very interestingly, the Bible doesn't answer that question. It doesn't tell us how much is enough. It does, however, give us a starting point. And in the Old Testament, that starting point is called the tithe. Tithe is just a word that means a tenth. But it was the increment of giving people thought about in the Old Testament. Actually, they gave about three and a half tithes per year. But it was all broken down and started with the tithe. The tithe belongs to God. It's seen as a threshold for giving in the Bible, a starting point. Somebody said, well, wait a minute. Now in the New Testament, you don't see anything about tithing. No. You see something about generosity. What is generous? Well, if they started with a tenth in the Old Testament, it would seem reasonable that we would start with a tenth in terms of being generous in the New Testament. It's, it's logic. There are three reasons I can think of for honoring God by tithing, and this comes from Rick Warren. A lot of this outline came from Rick Warren. It shows our past gratitude. It's a big thank you for all God has done in our lives when we look at the past. A guy by the name of Kent Crockett said this, Although we can give without loving, we cannot love without giving. Giving our money to the Lord proves that we love Him more than the things we could have purchased with it. Isn't that a great statement? Let me read it again. Giving our money to the Lord proves that we love Him more than the things we could have bought with it. So tithing shows past gratitude. Secondly, it's a reminder of the present. Kent Crockett again, giving our money to the Lord is one of the ways we die to self. A paraphrase of one Old Testament verse concerning tithing goes like this. It's from Deuteronomy 14.23, and I'll give it to you from the Living Bible. The purpose of tithing is to teach you to put God first in every area of your life. When we write out that tithe check, it's saying, God, I want you to be first in every area of my life, even in my finances. Third step. It's a step of faith for the future. So it shows past gratitude. It's a reminder for the present. And it's a step of faith for the future. For the future. It says, I'm going to trust you, God, tomorrow. When we give with the right motives, we will never outgive God. There was an old man 
walking across the Mojave Desert one time, just dying of thirst. He came across an old pump. By it was a sign, directions. It told him to dig one foot deep, and when he did so, he would find a glass jar filled with water. It further instructed him to prime the pump with this water, stating that soon you'll have plenty of water. When you're done, refill the jar and bury it. Here's the guy now faced with an obvious dilemma. What am I going to do with this jar of water? I could drink it and have my thirst quenched for a time. It took faith to use that water to prime the pump. It would have been a lot easier just to drink it. But that showed no faith in the future, no confidence in the future. And that's what tithing is. It's saying by our actions, God, I have faith in you to take care of my future. The first fruits of my labor go to you. When we do this as a couple or as a single, and our motive is to honor God and support his kingdom work, we will never outgive God. There's a whole lot more that could be said about this. I think we've said enough for today. We need to honor and discipline ourselves with respect to our money. This is true of married couples. It's true of those not yet married. We should enjoy what God has given us. And we should honor God with it. And here it is, maybe the quintessential word on this. At least it's quoted quite often. Malachi 3.10. This is God's opinion and his promise regarding this thing of financial uh, finances, our money. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that you won't have room enough for it. Isn't that a great promise? What a great promise. It's a test of our faith. It's a challenge to our faith. It's something God calls us to. So here are some things we can take home with us today that will make a difference in how we think and act about money and relieve stress over it in our lives. Married or not, we should know where it's going, have a good way of accounting for it. We should plan where it goes. We should live by a budget of some kind. We should enjoy what we've got. Learn to be content by living within our means. And we should practice generosity with what God gives us by helping others and by honoring God through our his tithe and our offering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the practical take-home counsel that you give us in Scripture. We pray today that you'd help us to take it home, to apply it, and to find you faithful and to find all of our needs met. Help us not to be foolish with what you've entrusted to uh, to us, but to be wise. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We're going to wait upon you now for the Lord's tithe and your offering. I'll be right back.